Is it scriptural to call Jesus Christ your friend? Amen. Is it? Amen. John chapter 15, verse 14. They had it correct in this hymnal for a change. Ye are my friends, if you do whatsoever I command you. Amen. Henceforth I call you not servants. He should. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. Amen. John fifteen fourteen and 15. I hope no one has any problems singing that song that we just sang. Nope. Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 13 and see another church that God blessed. I, I know the time, I know the day of the week, and I will try to cover the chapter of Acts 13 in a timely fashion. I want us to see one of the great churches of the New Testament, and it's the church in Antioch of Syria, 200 miles north of Jerusalem or so. Syria then, Syria today. And there, just off the coast of the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea is a city called Antioch of Syria, where we're going to find the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. If you come back to Acts chapter 11, the last few verses, remember that Barnabas had found that Gentiles were being converted in Antioch. And he went there, and then when he saw what was happening, he went there on behalf of the Jerusalem church. He went and got Saul of Tarsus and said, wait till you see what's going on in Antioch. Come and join me. And the two of them were there for a while preaching. The Christians were first, they were first called Christians in that place. Then a prophet came from Jerusalem, spoke of a great hardship, a dearth throughout the earth that would be in Jerusalem, and that church decided to send financial aid, and they sent it by the hands of Saul and Barnabas. So they went down to Jerusalem. While they were in Jerusalem, they picked up one of Barnabas' relatives. You can read about that in the last verse of chapter 12, and brought him back to the church in Antioch of Syria from Jerusalem, And there's where we come to Acts chapter 13, verse 1. We've got Barnabas and Saul back in the church, and they've got Barnabas' nephew, the son of his sister Mary, where the prayer meeting was held in Acts chapter 12, for Peter, who was in prison. The three of them are there in this church, along with some other teachers. Heavenly Father, Acts chapter 13 was given to us by your blessed choice. We will open it tonight and read it, and I'll give the sense of these words, and I pray that you'll sanctify and bless them to the hearts of your people as we look at an example church that we can follow. Heavenly Father, let us be a church like them that brings honor and glory to your name, for we ask it in Jesus Christ's name, who is the Savior and the head of the church. Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 13, the first three verses. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. We first of all want to notice in this first verse, now there were in the church that was at Antioch. We're Baptists. 
And we're Bible Baptists, which means the church is a group of people in one place, and we're not looking for all of a certain denomination across the whole earth to call it a church. The Roman Catholic Church has various dioceses, but there's only one church. We believe in the churches of Jesus Christ scattered throughout the earth. So I just want you to notice that in the Word of God, the word church is used to describe a single congregation in one place. It describes us in this place. We are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need no other church. We need no other body to help us be the church of Jesus Christ. We're the church of Jesus Christ by ourselves. It is one of the most liberating points of doctrine of all. For church independence, liberty, and pleasing Jesus Christ is what I just told you. And unless you've been in denominationalism before, you can't fully appreciate what I just said. But it's right here in the first verse. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch. Remember, this is Antioch of Syria. I'll probably say that a few times. I was going to have maps for you this evening, and I've run into a little difficulty. I'll explain that later. I'll get you some maps so that you can follow Paul's evangelistic trips. It's very helpful to see where he's going in Turkey, Greece, and that part of the Roman Empire at that time. But I want you to remember, 200 miles north of Jerusalem, Israel is a skinny little nation that runs north and south at the east end of the Mediterranean Sea. And if you go up a couple hundred miles, you come to Syria, and there is a city there named Antioch. And this is where this church was formed. And there were several teachers there. Barnabas was there. Simeon that was called Niger. Now, that Niger I've picked, I'm pronouncing that word Niger from a self-pronouncing Bible that I found this week to save me from pronouncing this word the way that the Oxford English Dictionary tells me to pronounce it. There's nothing wrong with the word nigger when it's used in a godly sense. And all of you parents are going to have to take care of that with your children. I'm just going to tell you the English language. All the word nigger is is a Latin word to describe a negro. And it was spelled just this way. You can look it up in the standard of reference for the English language, and it's the Oxford English Dictionary. There's about six spelling variants of it, and this is proof that this man was a black man. He was a Negro. I remember when we had black members. They came to me one time, and they were the first ones that pointed it out to me, that they knew that there was a black teacher in the church that was in Antioch of Syria. And there it is right there. There isn't a doubt about it. The Holy Spirit wanted to put in there that there was a black Gentile that was one of the teachers in the church in Antioch of Syria. Remember, we already had the Ethiopian eunuch, and who knows where this man came from. And Lucius of Cyrene, Cyrene's way over in Libya, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas, who was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. This man was brought up with him. Here's an example like Moses who left privilege and status in life to become a teacher in this church that was in Antioch. Right. And Saul. This is, in just a few, verse, a few verses, it's the last time we're going to ever refer to him again in the book of Acts as Saul. Because he's about to become our apostle. Amen. And he loved to magnify that office, that he, a Jew, had been chosen to open the word of God to the Gentiles and fulfill that mass of prophecies in the Old Testament, how God would send light to the Gentiles who were sitting in darkness. Amen. I want you to love the Apostle Paul just as the tool that God used and blessed him so abundantly. Right here he's called Saul. As they ministered to the Lord, all these ministers... 
in executing their office, praying, preaching, reading, exhorting. It's called ministering to the Lord. That That's quite a job, isn't it? Isn't that a hard job to be able to minister to the Lord all the time? It's a blessing, brethren. Amen. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. When God is going to, if you want God to lead your life, let's just look at this. Here's an example church of Christians by God's definition. If you want the Lord to lead in your life, there need to be times of prayer and ministering and fasting in your life. If you're not ever fasting, don't be surprised if you don't ever have any leading or blessing. Because fasting is a godly thing and these people were doing it. These ministers were doing it. It's a warning to me. It's it's an example to me. It's instructive to me. And I hope it is to you also. When they were in that process of ministering to the Lord, fulfilling their duties, and fasting, the Lord speaks. And as soon as the Lord spoke to them and said that, I want Barnabas and Saul for a special work, what did they do then? They fasted and prayed again. And I've mentioned that before, but I want to mention it again. This, these words are here for our learning. Amen. Fasting and prayer. You want to move mountains? You want to really make headway with the great God? Show them your sincerity with some fasting and prayer. I want you to remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul would just assume that Christian couples from time to time are going to give themselves to fasting and prayer, including abstinence from sex. Any pleasure they're going to put aside for a little while to seek the Lord. He just assumes it. He's not even talking about fasting or prayer. In 1 Corinthians 7, he just slips it in and assumes it. And here we have the example. Before they get the message, they're fasting and praying. When they get the message, they fast and pray again. They know that it is not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6. And that was when there were some very fearful men looking at the ruins on the top of Mount Zion. After, Do you know what a building that has been torn down and left for 70 years looks like when you come back to visit it? You take a city and tear every stone apart, every structure, and just leave it there and let the elements work their course. Do you know what a city looks like? And this little band of Jews that came back from Babylon stood there and looked at it. Do you know what you'd say? No way. And so the Lord came to him and said, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. And that's also a few verses later it says, Don't you dare despise the day of small things. Right. Jesus Christ came to that temple, but that's another, that's a whole other subject. They laid their hands on them, brother. Laying, the laying on of hands is scriptural. It doesn't, we don't convey grace that way. It's a public, formal, official way of designating someone to a work that God's called them to. There, there's, you, don't, you wouldn't be able to put electrodes on a Baptist laying hands on another man and get a reading. Right. And I'm not trying to be foolish. I want you to think about it. It's just a, an official designation. Right. It has as much value as the clay and spittle that Jesus Christ stuffed in a blind man's eyes. Right. It was, what, what does clay and spittle stuck in your eye How does that help your vision? It's the whole point. It doesn't help your vision at all. You'd be want to go wash your eyes out. Jesus did it that way in order to prove that it was all by divine power. He even spit in the face of a man I read this past week as I was going through the miracles again. It's 
There's no power conveyed. It is the official designation, God's orderly way of having ministers put their hands and other ministers. They were already all ordained. But separating them. This was the official separation. As they prayed and fasted, they laid their hands on them and officially designated these two to go do a different work. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, that's the only way you ever want to go, is by the leading of the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, a few miles away, a coastal town that would allow them to catch a ship, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Now I want to read in verse 4 down through verse 5. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. Now, the church, the, the, the elders there separated Barnabas and Saul, but they also took along Barnabas's nephew, John Mark, as a, as a help. He wasn't a teacher. He's not listed there yet. He will be much later. When they left the city of Seleucia, they got on a ship and sailed about 200 miles into the Mediterranean Sea. There are three islands in the Mediterranean Sea, and I must do this because you don't have a map in front of you, and I'm very sorry. You have them in the back of your Bibles, and I'm going to try to help you with one. In the Mediterranean Sea, there is, under the boot of Italy, an island called Sicily. As you move eastward through the Mediterranean Sea, you come to another island, still called the same thing in the Bible as it is today, Crete. As you move almost all the way to the end of the Mediterranean Sea in Turkey and Syria, you have Cyprus. So when they sailed from Seleucia, they went a couple hundred miles to that easternmost island called Cyprus. And the first city they landed at was a city called Salamis, and they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to their minister. John was their helper while they were the preachers of the gospel. I want you to notice here, we're going to see it over and over and over again. When these men, carrying the beautiful gospel of peace, when they would come to a city, they did not go to the brothels. They did not go to the jails. They did not go to the street corners, and they weren't handing out tracts in the airport. They went to a synagogue where men would come together to worship the true God of Israel. That is where they went. Always. Unless... There were believers in a town that didn't want to worship in the synagogue and were worshiping by a riverside, Acts chapter 16. Right. Or when, there's, when it's known that you can go to the marketplace and debate with men philosophically about religion, Acts 17, Athens. And when you are invited to go to Areopagus, which was a place where men were allowed to speak, when the Athenians wanted to hear about the resurrection of the dead from the Apostle Paul. Otherwise, they went to a place where the true God was worshipped. Very important. It totally confounds all the modern efforts of so-called soul-winning to go out and discriminately cast their pearls before swine. It's ridiculous. They did not do that in the Bible. And I want you established in that fact. They did not do it in the Bible. If anybody ever tells you they did preach in jails, yes. And when you, when you find one of these soul winning boys from Bob Jones University that wants to go get his feet locked up in stocks in the innermost prison and can sing songs at midnight and all the prisoners can hear them, then we'll listen to them a little further. But they didn't go to prison by choice to preach to criminals. Criminals are those that hate God. They went to where men were worshiping God. 
and they would go to the synagogue of the Jews because every Gentile in the world knew then that if you were going to worship the true God, the only place, the only official place to do it was in the synagogue of the Jews because they were the ones that God had revealed himself to. They had the word of God. What did a Gentile have without the Jewish Old Testament scriptures? The light of nature. And what would that lead you to? Not a whole lot. So I want you to notice that. Let's, and it doesn't tell us much about this city of Salamis in verse 4, but they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to their minister. So we're going to come on now to verse 6 and run down to verse 12. And when they had gone through the isle, they went from one end of the island of Cyprus to the other end, and when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, which was with the deputy of the country, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man, who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the sorcerer, for so was his name by interpretation, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Then the deputy, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. Praise the Lord for giving us a picture of New Testament Christianity. It is not milk toast, nor is it effeminate. It is masculine. It is powerful. It represents the Lord Jesus Christ. They came to this city of Paphos, and there was a Roman-appointed deputy there in charge of the whole island of Cyprus. His name was Sergius Paulus. And there was a false prophet Jew there that was trying to mislead him by sorcery, which is witchcraft, signs and wonders, false foretelling of the future in an effort to influence this man, Sergius Paulus. And the apostle Paul and Barnabas run into him. And as soon as they begin to preach the gospel, because this man, this deputy, has asked to hear the word of the gospel... Satan is already at work to hinder their work. Satan is already out to hinder what the Holy Ghost has sent them to. If the Holy Ghost has a purpose for your life and leads you in a certain way to do something, that doesn't mean there there aren't going to be obstacles. They've just got started. And all of a sudden, they have this sorcerer using witchcraft and now trying to hinder a man from hearing the gospel who wants to hear it. God's doing preparatory work, wouldn't you say? Why would a Roman, Sergius Paulus, want to hear from Saul and Barnabas? Who are they? They don't have much of a reputation yet. They will, but they don't yet. But this man wants to hear. And verse 8 tells us that this sorcerer named Elamas, by interpretation, withstood them. He tried to oppose them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. 
He did not want this deputy to be converted. And this is the work of Satan always to keep people from being converted. Jesus said the seed is sown by the wayside and the devil comes along and picks it up. That's one problem with preaching the gospel. Because Satan is there to pick it up if a person does not focus in assemblies and hear the word of God and take it home with them, but leaves it by the wayside, it'll soon be snatched away. And here we have an effort to do that. But I want you to see a man full of the Holy Ghost. He is not timid. He is not weak. He is not apologetic. He is not politically correct. He's not socially acceptable. And we don't do any of those things to be unacceptable socially. All we want to do is follow the Word of God. And look at how Paul addresses this man. He filled with the Holy Ghost. You can't wonder if he was in the flesh. There's no flesh involved in this. This is the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost wants to bear testimony to Jesus Christ. And here's the leading man, the most important position on this island, who wants to hear the Word of God. The Holy Ghost through Paul says... Oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil. Now, those aren't polite words. And those kind of words aren't spoken very often. But when someone is withstanding the truth, the truth ought to be presented boldly. And if it's not being presented boldly, it's not being presented by the Holy Ghost. Because you're going to find in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul would pray, would say, pray for me that I might be bold in my presentation of the gospel. And boy, he sure is here. Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Calling him a perverter of the right ways of the Lord. And then he puts a curse of blindness on him and a mist of darkness. And here we have this man who was going to be a leader of Sergius Paulus. Now he's groping around as in the dark, looking for someone to lead him because he can't see anything. Praise the Lord. Amen. And here's this deputy, this man that he was beginning to put his trust in, this sorcerer. He sees the conflict between the two of them, and they're addressing spirit, the spirits that he may not have known before. And all of a sudden he sees his man groping around in darkness. Amen. And he's astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. We have been accused of being arrogant. We've been accused of being carnal. We've been accused of being too fleshly in the way we preach and believe the gospel. But notice how this man was converted. By singing, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus." And we do believe that. He was converted by the astonishing doctrine of the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ in giving a curse out like that and shutting that man down. He said, this must obviously be the truth. Because look what it just did to my man. I love it. I love it and I hope you love it. The deputy, when he saw what was done, believed. What did he believe? The message that Paul and Barnabas were preaching because it had just been confirmed by that mighty sign and wonder. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, They came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, that's a little move there. They had to leave the city of Paphos, go to the coast of Cyprus, get a ship, sail a couple hundred, three hundred miles around Cyprus up to what is now known as Turkey, go up a river there, and land at a place called Pamphylia in a city named Perga. And all we're told in verse 13, John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. 
He was a deserter. We're going to come upon this later. Two chapters from now in Acts 15, we're going to find out that the Apostle Paul was offended, that this man couldn't stay with them and help them. They needed him. He was a minister. He was a servant to Paul and Barnabas, and he left. I'm calling him Paul now for a reason, because I want you to come back to verse 9. Then Saul, and this is Luke helping us out a little bit, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost. That's the last time you'll ever see him called Saul. It's Paul from here on out. We don't know why Luke changes it right there for absolute certainty. We know that he became the apostle to the Gentiles. We know that Saul was a Hebrew name. Remember King Saul. We know that Paul was a Roman, Sergius Paulus. And so there's a switch here. And this Hebrew, Saul, is now Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. We're, we don't, no explanation, but now he's Paul. So now we have the apostle Paul. He was offended with John de- departing from them and returning to Jerusalem. Remember, his mama lived in Jerusalem. Remember, I just tried to give you that background. Barnabas and Saul had gone down to Jerusalem from Antioch to take a gift from the church and had brought him back. His mother lived down there close to the prison where Peter went and where the prayer meeting was being held. John Mark returned to Mama and didn't stay with Paul and Barnabas. And you say you're being tough on him. I'm just going to stand where the Apostle Paul stood. When we get to Acts 15, you'll see that Paul was very convinced about the way that he was deserted by John Mark. But, brethren, you know, we can all have failures in our lives, and by failures we mean sin. I mean sin. And the Lord can restore souls. And I want to tell you, I'm going to, I'll show you later in the Bible what Amen. Paul thinks of John Mark. Amen. Verse 14. Now it gets exciting. It's been exciting. It gets better. Amen. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Pisidia is like the Piedmont. It's a name for an area. And Antioch is a different Antioch now. We're in the middle of Turkey. We're north of Israel, right across the Mediterranean Sea in in what's now known as Turkey, in the middle of it, in a city called Antioch in Pisidia. And as their manner is, guess what they do? They went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. This has been one of my favorite passages for a long time. To read through the book of Acts and see the Apostle Paul. He's just been separated by the Holy Ghost to go out and preach. He comes to this city in the middle of Turkey. He's, listen, that's a long way from Israel. The gospel had barely made it to Antioch in Syria. He's across the Mediterranean Sea in no man's land. And he comes in to this city called Antioch in Pisidia, goes into the synagogue, sits down, and the leaders of the synagogue, we don't know, except that God was in the matter. They didn't have much of a reputation yet. They had been at Perga for a while. But the rulers said, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? We'd like to hear you speak. Can you just see Paul's face? I'm serious. When you read the Bible, enjoy it. Can you see Paul's face? The Lord is in this matter. He would have elbowed Barnabas. They'd have looked at each other. 
twinkle in their eye, joy on their faces, full of the Holy Ghost, and Paul would have slowly walked up to the front, and he wouldn't have said, well, I don't really have much to say this morning. Amen. <laughs> okay. Some of you have been there, done that? Yeah. Not, not the Apostle Paul at all. <laughs> Look at Paul. Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand. He was excited and ready to go. The Holy Ghost had prepared him. The Holy Ghost had prepared these people. And do you know what he's going to preach? Do you need to guess what he's going to preach? He's going to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen. The God of our... The, the God... No, no, let's get back to verse 16. I'm sorry, brethren. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel and ye that fear God, give audience. Amen. Two groups of people there. The Jews, the men of Israel, and the Gentile proselytes, those that feared God. The Jews already feared God that were there in a synagogue. They wouldn't have been at the synagogue unless they feared God. But this other expression is describing the Gentiles that wanted to worship in a Jewish synagogue, contrary to all the pagan temples that were all around them and all the tradition of their parents, they had left because they feared the God of Israel. Right. So, he would say, and he's going to say it again in the middle of this sermon, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, Gentiles, give audience. Everyone in the room fears God. They wouldn't be there. Right. Only an exceptional person would have wandered in there that didn't fear God. Paul's addressing a whole group of people that fear God. Jews, by national training and upbringing, and Gentiles, by the grace of God, that had converted to the Jews' religion and worshiping in synagogues. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers, election in the first sentence, and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. He's summarizing hundreds of years of history in a very concise way that would get Jews and Gentile proselytes excited. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. Brethren, do you understand verses 19 and 20? That God blessed Israel to come out of Egypt, destroy seven established nations in the land of Canaan, take the land of Canaan, and set up judges, and the judges were over Israel for 450 years. Do you understand that? Every other version that is out there today says that it took 450 years for God to destroy the seven nations in the land of Canaan. And after all those things were done, then he gave them judges. I would take it and read it to you, but I'd... I'd okay, why would I chase this rabbit, and why is it important to me? Do you believe you have the word of God? I want to tell you something. When Paul stood up and they read the law and the prophets in that synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, they weren't in doubt about the 450 years. Right. They had the Bible, we have the Bible, and no one else has the Bible. They are so 450 years totally mixed up. Who took the land of Canaan? Quickly, who was the leader of Israel that took the land of Canaan? Joshua. How old was he when he died? 110. How many years of his 110 did he spend in the wilderness? 
going in circles, 40. So it couldn't have taken over 70 if he started out as a baby, right? But he wasn't a baby. He had been a young man with Moses, and so he was a grown man when Moses gave him the reins of power over the reins of authority over Israel when he went into the land of Canaan. Now, if we go back and read the book of Joshua and Judges, we find out by the life of Caleb that it took five years because God was with them. They went across the river Jordan. The walls of Jericho fell down. Ai was taken easily, and everyone else got frightened. And in five years, it was all done. Then God gave them judges after the death of Joshua for 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And you can go back through the book of Judges in a good chronology of the Bible and see the 450 years. But the other, every other Bible version out there says that it took 450 years to conquer the seven nations in the land of Canaan. And after all those things, they had judges. Pitiful. Next verse. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Kis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. Now go read every other version in 1 Samuel 13, 1, and see what they say about the reign of King Saul. I call that verse the Bible Babel. If you want the Tower of Babel reestablished, and you want to get excited and bless God for His Word, get 20 false Bibles, look, look 1 Samuel 13, 1 up in all of them, because you're going to have 20 different interpretations, all with different ages for Saul and for lengths of his reign. Right. It's a precious verse. Why is that verse there? God gave it to us. Amen. He just gave us a present. It was a humorous present. It was a blessed present. It's a glorious present. He just gave us something to look at and get ex- My My wife knows, and I, my sons have heard it a couple times, and a couple brethren have. I'll jump up from finding something like that, and, I, and I'll be speechless. I'll be, what's it worth? A, th- a thousand. Would I pay it? Five thousand. It's like I'm in a bidding war with the Lord. What he just, what's it worth to have that verse? First Samuel 13.1. They're all totally confused. And none of them have the truth. Amen. Except your King James Bible. Amen. Because 1 Samuel 13, 1 doesn't have a thing to say about how long King Saul reigned. Right. <laughs> but they think it does. No, you don't believe me. First, I don't have time. I've done it before. If anybody wants me to send you the Tower of Babel, erected in the 20th century with modern Bible versions, you will have a blast. And afterward they desired a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. Oh, brethren, there's, a, there's so much in that 21st verse just thinking about Saul. They wanted a king. Saul was such a timid man. He was so afraid of public uh, speaking or public acts of being a king he wasn't ready to be a king, but God can change the heart of a man. Right. If there's anyone here this morning that you're, you're afraid, you're intimidated, you're threatened, you're unsure of yourself, brethren, go to God. He can change your heart. Right. He can change your heart. I read about an eight-foot man who was hiding in the stuff when it was time for his coronation. But I also read about a man who was then prophesying with the prophets of God because God had given him a new heart. And when the Philistines came, he took himself a yoke of oxen, hacked them in 12 pieces, sent them out UPS to all the 12 tribes of Israel and said, if you don't get here by tomorrow, ready for battle, this is what I'm going to do to all your oxen. Now that is a man. That is a man. What happened to him? 
Isn't that exciting? That's all in that verse. God can give you that heart. That's all hidden there in the verse. It's there. It just Because, see, brethren, it says God gave unto them Saul. That's why I wanted you to see that God gave them Saul. When God gives someone, God prepares the man. And when he removed him, and that's literal, isn't it? And when he had removed him, did he die of natural causes? No. What did he do to himself? Killed himself in hopeless misery. Why? Because he rebelled against the word of the Lord. It's very concise, but it's very accurate, isn't it? And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Right. Now, brethren, there's the, there's the shortened version of the history of Israel given by the Apostle Paul when he's asked to say a word or two. Now it's going to get exciting. Amen. Because they all agree so far. They're shouting, Amen. Chairs are rattling. They're excited. They're ordering tapes in the back. But now, the Apostle Paul goes on to something that, I'm serious. I am dramatizing what's going on there for you to understand it because they were a group of people like you and me who were out to hear the Word of God. They were seeking God. These Gentiles, who knows what they had lost converting to Judaism. And they're sitting in there, and do you know what they're about to get? The mother load. Amen. The mother load of God's grace. Right. They're about to hear of Jesus Christ, and that He came to save Gentiles. Just hold on. I'm, we're going to get there in just a couple minutes. I am. This is a glorious moment, because the Holy Spirit prepared the preaching, and the Holy Spirit prepared the people. And it's a a glorious thing to to behold here in Acts chapter 13. Now the Apostle Paul is going to shift to things they haven't heard before. Of this man's seed, that is David the king, from verse 22. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. One verse. And he has introduced a whole new doctrine to them. They all knew that God had promised that there would be a son of David that would reign forever on the throne of Israel and deliver them from all their enemies. God, according to His promise, has done it. He's raised to Israel a Savior, Jesus. One verse. And we have the name Jesus introduced to these people. When John had first preached before His coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel... He reminds, now he's telling them about this Jesus. This is the Jesus of Nazareth that was announced by John the Baptist preaching down there across the Mediterranean Sea in the wilderness of Judea around the Jordan River. And as John fulfilled his course, they would have heard about John the Baptist. It's been three and a half years since he had been preaching. Well, no, it's not. It's been five or ten years. It's been a, it's been a good period of time. Right. They would have heard about John the Baptist because that was a strange event going on down there in Judea. Because all of Judea was going out to be baptized, this man in the Jordan River. And he was quite a character. He, he, didn't, he didn't slip through on the fourth page of the newspaper. He was in the front page because he was a wild man. He was in the spirit and power of Elijah. Right. He was changing Israel. His ministry was to change Israel and prepare a people fit for the Lord. 
So he's bringing in John the Baptist now, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. He's just put a couple things together. Just Can you pretend that all you know is Old Testament? David was promised by God to have a son that would be a savior of Israel. I want to tell you that that's Jesus. Don't you already know that John the Baptist announced him as being greater than he, and so great, in fact, that John the Baptist did not feel worthy to unloose his shoes? So they're sitting there in these thoughts. This inductive reasoning is, is starting to fall into place. Inductive reasoning is taking numerous minor propositions and coming up with a conclusion about the man, Christ Jesus. And these things are starting to filter into their minds as the Apostle Paul preaches to them. And now he says in verse 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, the Gentile proselytes, converts, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Amen. Wow. To you is the word of this salvation sent. He's not in a brothel. You'll never find a verse like this preached in a brothel, nor in a jail, nor on a street corner. It was where men feared God and were seeking God that this was preached. These people have been waiting for something like this. All they, Brother Matthew, you mentioned tonight, several others mentioned it, about begging God and seeking God and seeking the truth, and he did not leave you desolate. And he did not leave these people desolate. To you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem, he's going to explain a little bit more about Jesus. They that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Verse 29 leaves him in the ground. They have heard all of this. They know that Pilate crucified the man Christ Jesus who was an imposter. That would have been the reputation that the Jews would have sent throughout all the synagogues. Just like the Apostle Paul had persecuted all that followed that way. Not when he was the Apostle Paul, but when he was Saul of Tarsus, had persecuted all of them that way. To this point, they would agree that Jesus was crucified and put in the ground. But God raised him from the dead. Here's the Apostle Paul laying a bombshell on them. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings. Does that sound like the gospel, brethren? We declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children. Praise the Lord. This, this is glad tidings. Right. He is now going to explain God has raised him from the dead and the promise that God made to our fathers, he's fulfilled it to us, their children. We have the Messiah. We have the son of David, the savior of Israel. Amen. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again. Now, as in all doctrinal controversies and questions, 
we come down to, thus saith the Lord. Right. He has brought in history. He has brought in promises. He has brought in what they understood by rumor and news out of Judea. But now he brings in the word of God and starts to quote scripture and proves that Jesus indeed had been raised from the dead in fulfillment of the promises given to their fathers. And he gives them about four. Verse 33, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That's a sermon in itself. That is from Psalm 2. Do you know who, do you know who goes to Psalm 2 to grab a hold of that verse? Everyone who wants to teach the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and they make it some eternal day in the past when God the Father said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and his divine nature, the Son of God, was eternally generated by a mysterious generation in eternity past. Right. Is he correct in applying it to the resurrection? Amen. Go back and read Psalm 2. Doesn't it talk in Psalm 2 about Jesus Christ being put over the kings yes. of the earth? And kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his anger is kindled but a little? Right. That's the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. On that day, when he ascended up on high and was exalted at God's right hand, God said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee as Amen. king of kings and lord of lords. Right. Why do you think in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, he is called the first begotten of the dead? Amen. The first begotten of the dead. Right. It's talking about the exaltation and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no eternal sonship in here, and there is no incarnate sonship in here. It's all resurrection. Because Romans right. chapter 1 and verse 4 tells us that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, by the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Jesus Christ was manifested to be the Son of God, and the Son of David, and the glorious Savior of Israel by His resurrection. Who could understand the cross until the resurrection? They thought that he had died. It's the resurrection that reveals Jesus Christ as the Son of God, brethren. Amen. Romans 1.4, Revelation 1.5, and right here and Psalm 2. Oh, brethren, you ought to read a good eternal sonship advocate when they go to Acts chapter 13 and verse 33. You can feel them quivering off the written page, I promise you. Because they depend so heavily on Psalm 2 as being a verse describing some eternal act in the Godhead, generating an eternal son. And they come here and see the Apostle Paul applying those verses to the resurrection. I will show you a man quivering through the, writ through the written word. You can see him quivering. An Anglican named Matthew Poole, who I respect very highly for being so cautious and sober in his use of the word of God. And he admits that this is a terrible dilemma if this verse is to be entirely applied to the resurrection. And I'll say, bro, I just wish that I could have him and ask him why he needs to consider the dilemma. He ought to rejoice that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and declared to be such by the resurrection from the dead. Right. Amen. Now you're sitting in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, and you're wondering if there's ever going to be a Messiah for Israel. And here's this man who's given you some historical facts, some promises. He's told you about Jesus. 
and now he's just told you that he's been raised from the dead by God and that he's been seen by many witnesses and he invokes the first promise from God from Psalm 2 and says, the Lord has fulfilled it to us, their children. He comes to verse 34. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. There's prophecy number two. I will give you the sure mercies of David. The whole force of Paul's argument in verse 34 is in the word sure. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Meaning that nothing could happen because he would be resurrected from the dead and he wouldn't see corruption. He wouldn't be destroyed. Death could not hold him. He led captivity captive. It's the sure mercies of David. David wouldn't end with a man on the cross. David would have his son on his throne forever with a resurrected Christ in heaven. Verse 34. Verse 35, Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That's Psalm 16. And now here he uses some reasoning. He's talking to these Jews and Gentiles. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. So Psalm 16 couldn't have been talking about David. It had to have been talking about someone else. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. And Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. Be it known unto you, therefore, he's at his invitation. Amen. <laughs> he's drawing his conclusion with that, therefore, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Do you know why they went to that synagogue? To try to find forgiveness for their sins. They get up and read the law and the prophets, and all they would hear is that they were sinners. And they'd hear the law and the prophets the next Sabbath day, and they're sinners. And they'd hear the law and the prophet the next Sabbath day, and they're sinners. And now the Apostle Paul is there saying, God has fulfilled all his promises of a Savior to us. And I'm preaching to you the forgiveness of sins. Do you want to know that your sins have already been forgiven? This is the gospel of peace. Right. I want to tell you that Jesus Christ has already died for you and paid for your sins. I'm preaching to you the good news of the forgiveness of sins in the blood of Christ. And we read about it this morning in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. This was no invitation to obtain the forgiveness of sins in any legal sense. This was the preaching of forgiveness of sins that was already accomplished by a crucified and risen Jesus Christ, which they could believe and take to themselves and lay hold on that forgiveness for the peace, comfort, and hope of their own souls. And by him all that believe are justified from all things. By him all that believe, present tense, are justified, perfect tense, passive voice, from all things. You show me a man believing, and I'll show you a man that is already, that's what perfect tense means, justified from all things, from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Do you know what he just said in two verses? You come in here and meet every day, and you can't find forgiveness for sins, and you can no way be justified by keeping all those commandments because you all fail. But I'm preaching to you that if you believe on Jesus Christ, you can claim for your own conscience sake that you've already been justified. You are, have been redeemed. God has raised to Israel a Savior. Amen. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets, Habakkuk 1. Behold, 
ye despisers, and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. He gives them a warning from Habakkuk 1 that many of the Jews would hear this miraculous, fantastic, incredible gift of God to their nation of raising up a Savior to Israel, and they would not believe it. They'd be despisers, they'd wonder at it, and they would perish because Jesus Christ was coming back to destroy them. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Jews heard that, and they all filed out first. They're the ones of honor. The Gentiles were there. They've got this speaker up front who's just told them that there's forgiveness provided in Jesus Christ. The Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath day. Could you, could you, preach, that, could you preach that again next Sunday? Next Sabbath. Now, brethren, were they excited about what they'd heard so far? Watch this. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes, those of the Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. When did they get in the grace of God? They were in the grace of God before Paul and Barnabas ever got there. That's why they were worshiping the true God. They just needed a little bit more light on how they were justified. They were trying to get justified by the law of Moses. Romans 10 describes it so well. I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, are going about to establish their own. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. As soon as you believe that Jesus fulfilled it all for you, you quit trying to keep the law. Amen. They heard that. They got excited, and they followed Paul and Barnabas. Can you see those two men walking out? They came into town strangers. They walk out now like the Pied Piper. There's all these Jews and religious proselytes following them, and they they turn and tell them to continue in the grace of God. Don't let anything move you, because, brethren, in these days and times, there was persecution to pay for following Jesus Christ of Nazareth, as you'll see very shortly. Now, were they excited about the grace of God? Here's what we read that happened in a week's time. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Amen. Wouldn't that be great? We're not going to lust and fantasize about anything foolish. We'll take growth when God gives it. And if he doesn't give it, we'll still praise his holy name that he had mercy upon us. But it sure would be nice to have the whole city try to stuff themselves into the Bilo Center. Anyway, verse 44. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. They're coming to hear the word of God because these people went out and said, we heard something this past Sabbath you wouldn't believe. It was the word of God opened so plainly and powerfully that there's a Savior. And the whole city comes together. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Now that's a pretty plain verse, isn't it? It tells us why people can't stand the truth when it's having some success, because they're envious. Do you know what kind of authority Paul was preaching with? They'd never heard anything like that in their lives. The Jews hated Jesus Christ for the very same reason. Remember Pilate understood it? Pilate picked it up very quickly, that they were crucifying Jesus Christ out of envy. Because he spake as no man spake. They were astonished at his doctrine. Because he spake with power and authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And they hated him for that. Here's the Apostle Paul doing the very same thing. The Jews get jealous because they see so many wanting to follow the truth. And they contradict and blasphemed it. 
The Jews had no compunction at all about blaspheming Jesus of Nazareth. They were profane. Jesus said that generation was more filled with devils than any generation that has ever come on the face of the earth. And he was going to wipe them off the earth. You go read the testimony of Jesus Christ about that generation of Jews that crucified the Lord of glory. They were profane men, unreasonable men, wicked men. And he said he was going to bring upon them all the blood from righteous Abel all the way down to the last prophet slain in the Old Testament, including the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. They fulfill Habakkuk chapter 1 perfectly. These wicked Jews in verse 45. Now here we have something. And brethren, if it wasn't for verse 46, we wouldn't be assembling here tonight like this. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. I thought they had been pretty bold. But they waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Amen. Can you, can you imagine being a poor, benighted Gentile there in that place and sitting there knowing always you were a second-class worshiper of God because you weren't a Jew? And this man has just declared the most glorious message possible. The whole city has come together to hear it, and they're contradicting and blaspheming and getting jealous, which would have been obvious. And those two men stand up and with all boldness of the Holy Ghost turned and said, we're going to the Gentiles. Right. A cheer went up from those brethren. Amens were shouted. Hallelujah! Amen. They were worshipers of God. And the message was to them. They'd found their name Gentile in some of those Old Testament prophecies. They knew that there was something in store for them. And here Paul gives it to them right here. Acts 13, verse 46 is a verse for us to be thankful for. Right. Amen. All men are unworthy of everlasting life. But few men are so profane as those Jews that would blaspheme the name of Jesus, who had the law, the covenants, the promises, and all the blessings that God could have ever given a people, and they blasphemed the name of His Son. They proved it. They showed it that they were unworthy of everlasting life, though it be true of all of us. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying... Now Paul's starting to get a few things together himself of what he was told on the road to Damascus. The Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Now, brethren, I preached enough this morning. I hope that you all know that Paul is not the light of the Gentiles, and he's not the salvation of the ends of the earth. Amen. Do you all know that? Right. Don't Can't you think of verses right now from John chapter 1 that would say something like, He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light? That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world? Right. Yes, that was John. Jesus is the light, and Jesus is the salvation, but Paul was bringing the gospel of the salvation, the good news of the salvation that was already an accomplished fact from the cross of Calvary. Amen. I hope that there's no question about that, because if you're going to look at that verse in any other way, we need the Apostle Paul back. Because he was the light of the Gentiles, and he was for salvation on the ends of the earth, and brethren, we're on the ends of the earth. If you want to take this verse literally, by the sound of its words instead of its sense, we need Paul. But we don't need Paul. Right. 
because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was simply bringing the message of salvation. He was bringing salvation to light to Gentiles that hadn't heard this message before. And when the Gentiles heard this, verse 48, heard what? That there was salvation for Gentiles. That Jesus Christ had died and paid for their sins, and there was forgiveness in his blood, even by the predestinating and electing act of God. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. I hope so. Like Psalm 68 and verse 3, let the righteous be glad. They were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Can you imagine them praising the word of the Lord, rejoicing, crying out, Hallelujah, Amen, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. And the Bible tells us, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's the doctrine we believe. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Whoever had crept into that synagogue that wasn't truly regenerated by the grace of God, nor chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, paid no heed to this message. But as many as were ordained to eternal life believed it. I took Acts at Bob Jones University. A whole semester, nothing but Acts. Everyday acts, more acts, lots of acts, by a professor named Dr. George Dollar. When we got to Acts 13, 48, I didn't know. I was an Arminian. I was a little Arminian boy sitting there not really knowing about very much about salvation. I was sneaking into the stacks of the Bob Jones Library to get into Jonathan Edwards in my spare time, and so I had seen a little bit about a God that I hadn't heard a whole lot from in the chapel messages at Bob Jones University. But when we got to Acts 13.48, and I read this, the book of Acts every week that semester, and I, I knew this verse was coming up. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. I hadn't been taught predestination or election. I have a father who loves predestination and election now. Amen. And all that matters is right now. Amen. The Apostle Paul taught a whole lot of things before the Lord had mercy on him. And the Lord knew that he was faithful before and after his conversion. And I can say that about my father. Amen. Right. But I came to Acts 13.48 and that man said this. Let me give you the true sense of Acts 13.48. It should be read. And as many as were disposed to eternal life believed. And he went on. As many as were disposed to eternal life believed. Well, that's nice. They had an inclination toward living forever. And so they believed. Well, brother, I don't believe any of that stuff. That's what I was taught. That's what men will do with the word of God. And I'm here to tell you tonight, you can believe it, you can understand it, because you can take this same word ordained, run over to Jude chapter, Jude verse 4, and find out that God's also ordained men to condemnation. Amen. That's the glory of a holy God Amen. that we worship. As many as were ordained, that is to be predestinated, that is to be chosen, that is to be purposed according to the eternal counsel of God to eternal life, they believed the gospel. Right. And what they do after they believed it, and the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. Amen. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. Had they stolen any money? Had they violated anyone? Defrauded anyone? They... Satan and wicked men hate the truth, and so will raise persecution against it. I want you to notice something, though, brethren. It's just a lesson for us, and you'll find it true in your life. Satan and the Jews used the politically correct, socially accepted people to persecute the gospel. The pretty people, the nice people, the gentle, civil, upstanding, fine, wonderful citizens to persecute the gospel. 
Because what in the world could a few simple men and simple believers do in the face of all these important, wonderful, accepted people? We've always been a persecuted bunch. Right. For 1260 years, the Church of Rome cut us by the millions. What did Paul and Barnabas do? But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to the next city. Amen. Amen. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Persecution wasn't doing a whole lot, was it? They were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost because the Gentiles had heard that there was a Savior for them. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Why don't they have that in the end zone at football games? (laughs) Acts 13, 48. Brethren, stand together with me. We love the Word of God. Let's glorify it. Amen. Amen.